few nights ago, there was a journalist and political activist by the name of Sean King speaking here in Chicago. A friend of mine happened to be there, and this wouldn't have caused, it wasn't, wouldn't have been a reason for me to know about this speech, except that it took place at Rockefeller Memorial Chapel. This friend happened to know that I liked the building, so he was sending pictures to me from it. This led to a brief exchange between the two of us about the movement Black Lives Matter. And one of the paradoxes of this movement and other recent popular movements like Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party is that they are largely anarchic, which is to say leaderless. The distinct disadvantage of lacking clearly defined leadership is that these movements are left vulnerable to demagoguery and exploitation by persons who really do have power, uh, whether inside or outside the movement. So one of the things this friend of mine said is that one can characterize Black Lives Matter in all kinds of ways because there's no authoritative person in the group to say what it is exactly. So it's notoriously difficult to characterize what any of these groups stand for. And so again, we can project onto these groups whatever we can get away with saying. So a lot of it depends on how much bravado we can bring to the situation rather than actual reason or argument. Uh, after this exchange, I was left asking myself, why is it that these movements seem allergic to leadership? And uh, it didn't take me long to figure out an answer. Those involved have internalized an aversion to authority. And all three of the movements I've noted so far, not to mention others like the Internet Hackers Anonymous, they have a kind of instinctive awareness of Lord Byron's famous maxim, power corrupts. So the idea is we don't let anyone in the movement have authority or power, we'll keep corruption out of it. Uh, if only it were that simple. But in a strange way, all of these movements acknowledge a part of the truth of what our Lord is teaching us this morning when he says, do not be called master. Why not? Because as I suggested above, a leaderless movement is vulnerable and it tends not to last very long because it, it's co-opted by somebody eventually. Someone comes along who really does have power and that's the end of the movement or it, be, it changes in some way. So it would seem that political life, any time we organize ourselves together in community, neighborhood, city, nation, we need some kind of structured leadership. But for this leadership to have any kind of legitimacy or moral authority, our Lord would say it has to be yoked to the one true master who is in heaven. In other words, leadership has to be, in some fashion or other, recognized as sacred. Which is to say that we moderns are going through a long crisis of authority and there's no clear end in sight. I suggested that the intuition of these leaderless movements only partially gets at the truth of our Lord's teaching in the Gospel today. Because Christ does not say no one should be in a position of leadership. Now, he doesn't say that. Actually, he supports those who are in positions of leadership in various ways. What he does say 
seems to admit that in human society again we're going to need to have some persons lead and that certain responsibilities flow from this. If we're going to organize ourselves uh, somehow or other someone's going to have to make decisions. And so responsibilities flow from this both for leaders, those in authority, as well as for those who are under authority. First let's take those under authority. That's a little easier. Our Lord teaches that the attitude his disciples should have toward those of the scribes and Pharisees uh, who occupy the chair of Moses and not, for example, the imperial throne. Uh, if I had time, I'd return to that, but I'll have to skip it for today. Uh, the religious institution of the time recognized the scribes and the Pharisees. They were teachers. They were spiritual fathers. And as such, our Lord's disciples were to listen to them. Respectfully, they were to carry out their teachings, even if the teachers themselves should act contrary to those teachings, which is to say that cynicism is not an excuse for disobedience. There may be just reasons for disobedience, but bad example, unfortunately, seems not to be one of them. But what about those who do sit not in the chair of Moses, but in positions of authority in the church. And let me say that this is a pressing question in general, not just for clerics. That's because since Vatican II, there has been an increasing tendency, I think largely good, to invest laypersons with positions of authority in the church. And even in the monastery, I would say, the superior has final authority, but... He delegates many positions to other brothers. So how are we to act when we're in those positions where we have responsibility and authority in the church? And that's clear again. If we look at what our Lord says, we're to humble ourselves, we're to serve. Now, that's easy to say. How does it play out? How, what does that look like in practice? When St. Francis of Assisi found it necessary to begin bringing some kind of shape to the movement that had grown up around him. He, he didn't want to found a religious order, uh, but he needed to do something because there were all these people hanging around him and they didn't, they didn't know what to do from moment to moment. So, uh, but he didn't want to be the leader. Instead, he called himself the servant of all. And uh, I'll just say, this didn't work very well. <laughs> Eventually, they had to organize themselves and elect a superior general and, and so on. And otherwise, the Franciscans wouldn't have survived as they have. Uh, Francis' genius was not in organization. You know, it was in, in a different kind of leadership. And what he wasn't able to grasp was the manner in which leadership itself ought to be a service. It really can be a service. A leader serves when he lays the groundwork for peace, because we all benefit from peace. This is the tranquility of order, as St. Augustine would have it. And this may at times require leaders to take a firm stance with disorderly members of a community. But this is important. The stance must not be marred by anger or haughtiness or insults because this just adds more disorder to the situation, you know. Uh, it, it, it removes one, one uh, source of disorder and adds another one. So... Ordering a community has to be done from a stance of peace, from a spirit of peace. It also requires prudence, which is to say virtue. 
We have to know when a certain type of behavior needs to be confronted. And, in contrast, we need to know when we can expect someone to grow out of a certain type of behavior on his or her own with the help of some gentle encouragement. So we have to know human beings. We have to know how to adjust ourselves to different temperaments and different stages of life. And we can, in fact, learn to be good leaders by learning to be trustworthy subordinates. And I can illustrate that from experience. Um, I've been superior for 13 years, so actually I, I do have some experience in this. I've, I've learned a few things here and there, uh, not as many as I would have liked, perhaps. But it often happens in Benedictine communities, and I think this is true in any organization. Um, but I'll speak about monastic life. When a brother gets a leadership position, uh, we can suddenly decide, yes, it's my turn to lord it over others. It's my turn to tie up heavy burdens and lay them on everyone's shoulders instead of having them laid on me. Right? I've been biting my tongue and obeying for long enough. Now it's my turn to give orders. But this, this demonstrates that we haven't internalized what humility and service really are. Uh, the, our previous obedience, how we experienced being asked to serve by others, how we experienced being asked to be part of an order, uh, we took it in a way that wasn't consonant with humility and service. And instead we bristled against it because we wanted to do our own thing. So what kind of disposition do we need to cultivate in the church today? And this is it, to see God at work in all of the circumstances of our life, in whatever we're asked to do. If it's easy, if it's difficult, if it's what we want, if it's what we don't want, to trust that God is bringing about his purposes, is sanctifying me, is preparing me for eternal life, is preparing me to serve the church at a deeper level. Uh, he can even teach and correct me through imperfect superiors. That can even happen. This takes real work and diligence in monastic life and in all areas of the church, I'm sure, because it's so easy today. Again, our, our world has been irrevocably touched by the gospel. We know the dangers of leadership and authority. That's, that's what I was saying before about these other movements which may or may not have anything to do with Christianity. The fact that Christianity is in the world, the fact that our Lord has come, we see now the problems of leadership more clearly. Okay, And it's easy today to give way to cynicism, either as a leader or as a follower, and to lose sight of God's mysterious involvement in human affairs, to imagine that God has abandoned us to unworthy stewards or saddled us with unruly subordinates. How are we to navigate these narrow straits? Let me close this morning with a wonderful saying of the man who's peeking through the medallion up here behind Our Lady, above the altar. Abba Anthony said, I saw the snares that the enemy spreads out over the world, and I said, groaning, who can get through from such snares? Then I heard a voice saying to me, humility, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your worries upon him because he cares for you.